So as uh, Nick already reminded us, if you weren't here last week, we're beginning a series um, on the Psalms and specifically focusing on this idea of just looking at God and praising Him. And I guess the question I just want us to start with, in some ways this just kind of continues from the way that Nick began last week, is if God doesn't need our praise, why are we commanded to praise Him? It's definitely the case that God doesn't need our praise. It's not like God is insecure. He knows who He is. He has been perfectly content as Father, Son, and Spirit for all eternity. He does not need to be told how great He is. So if God doesn't need our praise, then why are we commanded to praise Him? I think the answer that we see throughout Scripture, the answer that we see in our two Psalms this morning is that He commands us to praise Him not because He needs it, but because we need it. In the end, when we understand it, we will realize that praise is actually supremely practical. So you might have noticed we are looking at two psalms. They're sometimes referred to by commentators as twin psalms because they are so closely connected. There's a number of ways they are bound together. First, you might have noticed that they begin with the very same command, hallelujah, which literally just is a command to praise God. Uh, what's more, these two psalms, and if you don't have it open, I invite you to, because we're going to be looking at this passage quite a bit over the next uh, 25 minutes. Um, also, and you can't see this here, but in the Hebrew, these are both acrostic psalms, which means each line begins with the next letter of the alphabet. They're similar in that way. And perhaps you even notice the structure, that they both have the similar kind of stanzas. Stanzas one is one verse, the second stanza of the psalm is two verses, the next stanza of the psalm is three verses, and the final stanza is four verses. They are virtually identical when it comes to structure. But there's another way that they're connected, and we understand the connection when we look at the end of the first psalm and then the beginning of the next. So Psalm 111, if you might have kind of picked this up as we were reading it, is a psalm just about praising God, admiring God, recognizing how great He is. It's a call to praise. Psalm 112, on the other hand, is a psalm that sometimes is referred to as a wisdom psalm. It, it speaks of the good life that is offered to God's people. The very end of Psalm 111 begins to help us to understand how there's a connection. As there's this kind of ongoing praise, notice how at the end of verse 9 it says, His name is holy and awe-inspiring. Literally, it is bringing fear. So as we praise, we find ourselves fearing God. And so notice you see the next verse, the fear of the Lord. It's the beginning of wisdom. So now we're talking about the fear of God. Now how does chapter 112 begin? Hallelujah. Happy is the person who fears the Lord. So here's, we're supposed to read these two psalms together, and, and here's the logical progression. Praise, if we praise God in the way we are called to, leads us to fearing God. And as we fear God, we experience a life of flourishing. Praise leads us to fearing God, and as we fear God, that leads us to a life of flourishing. Praise, in other words, is the way to happiness. I'd like us to kind of consider every part of that by just kind of like looking at these two psalms. And first, I want to just consider this, this image of, of flourishing that, that fills Psalm 112. Um, you might notice the very beginning, it says, happy is the person who fears the Lord. Some, some translations have the word blessed there, but it's the same idea. It's, it's speaking of the good life. 
the life we want, the life of flourishing. It uses a single individual and kind of describes what that person's life looks like. And, and it reminds me a little bit, do you remember, um, I think it was maybe a decade ago, the Dos Equis commercials where you have like the man's, like the world's most interesting man. I mean, there's all these things that are said about him. You know, his shirts never wrinkle. Cuba imports cigars from him. Mosquitoes refuse to bite him purely out of respect. He once had an awkward moment just to see how it feels. The world's, you remember that, like, you know, it's like just going thing after thing, telling you just how interesting this person is. Well, that's actually kind of the way this psalm works. This, this psalm is describing just how good, how flourishing this life is. And if you just kind of work through the psalm, you see all sorts of different angles on it. So verses 2 and 3 speak of, of, of a life that is fruitful, He's strong with business. Wealth and riches are his, says verse 3. He, he does well for himself. In terms of family, similarly, it talks about his descendants are powerful. The generations of the upright will be blessed. His family does well. At the very heart of it, though, in the success we see at the very end of verse 3, his righteousness endures forever. That word righteousness, I realize, has almost a sanctimonious tone. We think of it in terms of self-righteousness. But the idea is just really more about doing things right. He does things the right way. In his dealings with others, he treats people well. In, in his business dealings, he is one with integrity. He doesn't just take shortcuts. He chooses things that are lasting. In, in all of his life, he does things the right way, and it lasts. There's success. It's not just fruitfulness, though. We see also that this person is honored. So verses 4 through 6, that's the focus. And the very end of verse 6 kind of summarizes that the righteous one will be remembered forever. How will he be remembered? Well, he'll be remembered, as verse 4 tells us, as someone who is a light shining in the darkness. Someone who is known for being gracious and compassionate. He's honored in his community. I know of a, of a man who's a pastor who for many years at a church in Seattle um, just kind of tirelessly and anonymously served his church. He was not famous by any standards. But years after he served there, his name is still spoken of in reverence in that congregation because he was known as someone who loved his people. His, his, his remembrance continues as one who is gracious and compassionate. That's what's being described here. And finally, not only do we see that this person, this, this blessed life of flourishing is, is fruitful and is honorable, but also this person is secure. So verses 7 through 10, he won't fear bad news. He's not anxious. He's confident. He's able to trust. His heart is assured. He will not fear. There is not anxiety that fills this person's life. Now just try to imagine what we're talking about here. Imagine this, this life where... There is a fruitfulness that the life feels like it's accomplishing something. Where the, the neighbors, the people who know this person, is, respects this person. Where this person is able to enjoy life without always being worried and anxious. When we try to put that together, if you can just start beginning to imagine it, isn't, isn't that the life you want? Isn't that a picture of, of a good life, a life of happiness, the life that each of us in our own ways are pursuing? And what Psalm 112 actually says is that life is available to us. Happy is the person who what? Happy is the person who got really lucky? No. Happy is the person who's just really gifted? No. Happy is the person who fears 
the Lord, taking great delight in his commands. Psalm 112 says, for those who fear the Lord and take delight in his commands, this is the life that is available to them. Now, right now, if you are with me, then you are probably also not certain about this. Because, at least for me, if I were sitting here right now, I would be saying, but wait a second, I, I know people who do things the right way. I know people who fear God. I know people who seek to obey His commands, whose life is not what Psalm 112 describes, whose life is filled with difficulty. And that observation is absolutely correct. In fact, the Bible is very transparent about that reality. If you think about Job, which is the book that happens right before Psalms, there is a person who feared God, who delighted in his commands, and for an extended period of time, his life was filled with misery and frustration. In fact, it seems that throughout the Old Testament, you have two truths that, that both are held out that seem to not be able to resolve into each other. One of them is God has made this world beautiful and ordered in such a way that if you live well, you are able to be in tune with it. But the second one is sin has broken this world, made it so that it doesn't work the way it's supposed to be. And that means sometimes the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. These two truths are held out without really a resolution until we get to the New Testament, where on one hand, these questions come to a culmination in Jesus. Because if you think about it, there is no person who feared God more fully than Jesus, who delighted in God's commands. And yet, when we see where his life goes, it is not a life where he has generations of upright will be blessed. He has, in Psalm, Isaiah 53 says, he had no generations. He dies, right? He has no wealth. He is killed. There is no honor to him. He is treated with shame. We do not see in Jesus, the one who fears God fully, a life that is described in Psalm 112 at the cross. And yet we also see a resolution to these two truths at the resurrection. Because then as Jesus is raised in glory, he is blessed above all others. The Bible speaks of how now he has innumerable spiritual descendants. All of us who trust in him are his descendants. How he is honored, how we worship him and, and give glory to him as the king who reigns above all things. How he has a security, he is triumphant. In every way, he is the happiest man who has ever lived as the one who is risen from the dead. And what the scriptures teach us is that very blessedness that Jesus enjoys as the risen king is now available to all who trust in him, that Jesus actually leads his people into this way of the fear of the Lord and to delight in the commandments. And he also promises us that even though perhaps right now in this moment we will not see it, in the end it will all work. In the end, all that Psalm 112 promises is true of those who pursue Jesus. So right now, there are ways that we are seeking to follow him that do not look like fruitfulness. They look like failure, but in the end, from the perspective of eternity, they will be seen clearly and we will realize our labor is not in vain. Right now, there are ways that we seek to follow Christ faithfully that looks just wrong to our community around us, that our community does not understand, but in the end, we will see that whenever we are faithful, there is glory in that and we will be honored. And though in this moment we sometimes feel very vulnerable, we will discover increasingly what the scriptures tell us, that there is nothing, not death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons that can separate us from the love of Christ, that we are truly secure. Psalm 112 is completely true when we understand it from the perspective of eternity. 
Yet I want to actually say more than that. I want to say that there is a sense that this, what this psalm promises actually is true to some degree even in this life in an imperfect but real way. That even though this world is broken by sin, it is still ordered by God and there's still a way where we can find ourselves in tune with this world. And I would imagine actually right now if I asked you to just think for a moment my guess is you can probably come up with some people in your mind of people who just seem to be that way, who have, oftentimes they're now older because it's taken some time, but seem to kind of know how to navigate life in such a way where they just seem to live well, in, in harmony with the way life is. This week, as I was thinking about that, I realized that one of the people that I, I, I know that kind of fit that is a man by the name of Dana Hawks. He's someone who kind of married into our extended family, so I've only known, I only knew him for about a few years. I only knew him after he had retired from his uh, life as a teacher at uh, a community college. And the thing that I would use to describe him more than anything else is here was a man who just seemed to be in tune with life. Like there, that he just knew how to live in such a way that fit. I mean, it's not that he was without suffering. His his first wife died to much heartbreak on his part. He had uh, incredible back pain, so it was hard for him to be able to actually walk very far. But at the same time, he had this kind of sense of, of joy and delight in the way that the world was around him. He was endlessly curious to the very end. He was someone who, because he knew who he was and content in who he was, he was actually really interested in whoever he met. You, you felt seen when, when you knew him. And he was respected I mean, he was loved by his family, respected by the world around him, and he had this endless desire to grow in his love for Jesus. When I, when I think of the person described here in Psalm 112, I think of Dana. And my guess is for you, if you spend enough time, you can think of a man or a woman who embodies this. Psalm 112 is, is encouraging us to say that, that life that you want that life where you are able to navigate things well and wisely and live well, that life is available to you as Jesus invites you into it through fear of God, through obeying his commandments. It will be imperfect in this world, only perfect in the resurrection, but it is real. And that life, we are being told here, comes to us through praise. Which I realize feels counterintuitive, like I'm saying two plus two is a baked potato. Like it doesn't seem how it fits together. And so I want us to kind of get to this second part and understand how is it that we can say praise leads us to this life of flourishing. And, and to kind of like start by kind of summarizing what I think our passage says. Praise is the way the reality of God becomes imprinted upon our souls. So this past week, I... Um, went to the dentist for the first time in a, in a long time. Don't judge, COVID kind of threw things off. But that meant that my dental hygienist had a very long time to be able to just share her story without my interruption. And, um, and so I heard from her, like, you know, how when she was uh, right, you know, like age 21 for the first time, she went to the Grand Canyon. And she had read about it, always wanted to see it. But she said when she came to it, she suddenly realized everything she heard about it fell short of the reality of the Grand Canyon. And she said in that moment, she decided she wanted to be a park ranger. There was something about just seeing it that kind of moved inside of her and kind of reworked her very being. It reshaped her. Do you know what that is like? Have you had an experience before in your life where you feel like some sort of reality just suddenly kind of like 
became inside you in a way that you realized you were being changed by it. Sometimes when we are involved in like a missions trip or some sort of volunteering and we become connected to, to poverty or different forms of living than we've experienced before, it, it changes us and we suddenly feel more passionate about it. There, there are different ways that certain moments, reality just kind of comes inside and reworks us. And what our psalms collectively together are saying is that's how praise works when it comes to God. That as we praise God, that reality starts becoming internalized and it reworks our very soul. We see this if we just look at kind of the way that the two psalms are connected in the structure. Let me see if I can show you. So we, so we already talked, you might remember, in verses 2 and 3 of Psalm 112, this idea of how the, the, the flourishing life that righteousness endures forever. Now, now look at verses 2 and 3 of Psalm 111 where it's talking about praising God. What, what do we see about God where it talks about his works are great. All that he does is splendid and majestic. His righteousness endures forever. You see the connection. Or you might remember verses 4 through 6 of Psalm 112. It talks about you know, he said, verse 6, the righteous one will be remembered forever. And it talks about how he is gracious, compassionate, and righteous. What do we see in Psalm 111 in that same section? God has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. How is he remembered? The Lord is gracious and compassionate. Do you see the connection? Or in the final stanza, remember in 7 through 10, we spoke about how the, the, the flourishing life is one that is free from anxiety, that is able to trust without fear. Well, what do we see in, in verses 7 through 10 of the first psalm? The works of God's hands are truth and justice, and all his instructions are trustworthy. Do you see the connection? See, I think we sometimes think that the way to become a, a stronger Christian is through more information. If we can just get our thoughts right, we will get our life right. If our brain can just understand theology, our life will correspond. But, but the key to formation is not just information. The key to formation is admiration. We become like what we admire. Which is why it's important, of course, for us to admire the right things. If our life, if we find some sort of kind of person that we find admirable and that person maybe was successful through in dishonest means, we will likely follow in suit. Or if we have no one we admire, our lives oftentimes will just be aimless because we won't know where to go. We become like what we admire. And what we see here is that with praise, we are admiring God. And with praise, because we are admiring God, we are being made like him. As we savor a God whose righteousness just continues on forever and ever, there is something about just delighting in that that rubs off on us. It imprints itself upon our soul, and we begin to live in that way as well. As we remember God's graciousness and compassion, then our lives become increasingly gracious and compassionate and actually rubs us so that other people see that about us. As we celebrate just how reliable and trustworthy our God is, we are slowly freed from anxiety and know that we don't need to fear. 
You see, as, as we praise, as we savor, as we admire, the reality of who God is in all of his glory and complexity slowly becomes imprinted upon our soul and it changes us. It, we become aligned with the reality of God. There is, there's a, a way the Bible speaks of that of that process of that kind of being aligned, being, having God's reality imprinted upon us, the way the Bible speaks of that is this phrase that we hear again and again, the fear of the Lord. That's what the fear of the, the, fear of the Lord is when who God is, all of who God is, his, his glory, his transcendence, his amazingness, his love, his compassion, all of that kind of presses upon our very being so that our whole lives become aligned to that reality. That's what it means to fear God. And when that happens, think about this. God is at the very heart of reality. There is no way to understand the world without God. All things exist from him. All things exist for him. All things exist through him. He is the very center. If we want to know how to live, the only way is by being aligned with who God is. Life will never make sense any other way. And that's why we hear here, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. As we praise, as we allow the reality of God to become affixed upon our heart, that aligns us not only with God, but aligns us with life, and we learn how to live well. That's, that's the theme when we understand these psalms together. There is an invitation Come, God says, I want you to know how to live in this world that I've made. And the way is through fear of me. And the way you can come to fear me and let your soul be changed is by praising, by, by celebrating who I am, by admiring me. That is what you need. My final minutes, I, I want us just, it gives us not only this explanation, but it actually gives us some instructions. You know, we might ask, okay, if, if, if we want that life, how can we praise in such a way that we can be aligned to who God is? And I just want to highlight at the end of our time three, three instructions that we see uh, in, verse, in Psalm 111, the one that's more focused on, on praise. First, notice in verse 1 where it talks about how the praise of God needs to be wholehearted. So I will praise the Lord with all my heart. Wholeheartedness means a couple of things at least, probably more than that. But one thing it means is that we, we learn to praise God unironically. We, we are in a time, it seems, like when, when no one wants to be completely sincere. No one wants to be kind of admiring without any hesitation. Because here's what happens. If we say anything... Like, so, boy, I really like the most recent Marvel TV series. You know the moment you do that without any qualification, someone will be like, Really? And, and you feel kind of like that vulnerability. So instead you go, yeah, that was all right. I mean, that's, you know, we, we, we will speak with, with guardedness or hesitation, but wholeheartedness is not that way. Wholeheartedness means we, with all of our being, say God is amazing. And there is no, on the other hand, there's no God is good, but. No, it's God is great. It is this, this unironic admiration. And what's more wholeheartedness is not just emotional. We think of heart in our language, we, we speak of heart as kind of the seat of emotions. But in Hebrew, the heart is just the whole inner self. 
It involves deliberation. It involves planning. It involves studying and all of those things. And so that's the idea of I will praise the Lord with all my heart. I will think about him. I will study. I will try to understand. I will try to plan how to live my life in such a way. I will also love him with my passion, with every part of who I am. I will praise my God. That is the wholeheartedness that we're called to. Second, the praise that helps form us, that brings about wisdom we see, is a praise that is social. Notice it says, I will praise the Lord with all my heart in the assembly of the upright. In other words, kind of in a, in a smaller area of conversation and in the congregation and church. And, and this makes sense if you think about it. If you were part of this church two years ago during that, that glorious time in 2020 where for three months we were able to watch church via YouTube. It was, it was a gift, right? There was a way that allowed us to stay connected to each other. And it was kind of interesting and kind of fun maybe at first, but it also kind of stank, right? I mean, I mean, when we came to the creed, it was good to be able to say the creed, but it was weird by ourselves. When we came to sing, man, we felt, at least I did, the ache of not being able to sing with you because there is a way where I am strengthened when I hear each of us say, I believe in God the Father Almighty. Yes. Or when, when people sing out, praise the Lord, or let all that is in me adore him, and they sing with tears in their eyes, that strengthens me. That's how it's supposed to be. This is what we've been talking about, haven't we? When we've been saying that if we were wanting to walk in the way of wonder, we don't do that alone. We only do that as a community. The way that we are formed, the way that we praise is together. Praise is meant to be social. So it, it's meant to be wholehearted and social, but I, I want to add one more thing here that I think is really the center of Psalm 111 that corrects, I think, a mistake that sometimes we have, a mistake that I know I had. When I was in college, I, I knew that there should be kind of a wholeheartedness of praise, and so when I, when I came, whether at church or some other gathering, a part of me felt this pressure to just kind of, I don't know, kind of like screw myself up and just kind of like whip myself up into emotion and like, you know, just like feel passion because I knew I was supposed to feel passionate about God. I don't know if you feel that, but I remember last week when Nick was saying, when you hear praise, what do you think? Part of me feels like, oh, I feel tired by the idea. Because there's a part of me that still thinks that praise is about us just choosing to be excited. And if you know something about yourself, you know that's not the way passions work. We don't just kind of turn the passion switch on and then suddenly it flows from us. And so here's what I also think is, is really helpful and interesting about Psalm 111. It, the choice that we're being told to make is not a choice of passion, but a choice of attention. Because our passions follow what we pay attention to. So, so notice what it says. It, it speaks about contemplating his works. The Lord's works are great studied by all who delight in them. There's an invitation to look at God's works. And, and what happens next is, is subtle if we're not paying attention. You know how sometimes in like movies or TV shows, when it's trying to move the plot forward quickly, you'll have this montage of about 30 seconds, music in the background, and you move from scene to scene to scene to scene, and suddenly the whole story is told. Well, there's something like that going on here. It's just hard for us to notice. So after it says, all that he does is splendid and majestic, his righteousness endures forever, he has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. And then here's the montage. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. And what he's saying is, do you remember that time when Moses was on the mountain and God revealed himself and he said, here is who I am, I'm gracious and compassionate. Do you remember that? 
He has provided food to those who fear him. Do you remember how we were in the wilderness and day after day, God gave us exactly what we need? Do you remember that? He remembers his covenant forever. Do you remember how we, we, we worshipped that, that calf? And then later on when God told us to enter the promised land, we said no. And yet God stuck with us and his covenant continued. Do you remember that? He has shown his people the power of his works by giving them the inheritance of the nations. Do you remember how we entered into the promised land and one nation after another was not able to stand up against us because God gave us a victory? Do you remember that? Do you see what, what this is meant to be doing as it moves from scene to scene to scene? It allows people not just to kind of know facts about God, but to experience the story of God and be shaped by it. And that is the fuel for praise. Yes, it's, it, you know, it's, it's helpful and interesting sometimes to speak of specific details about God, that God is holy and just, omnipotent, all of these things. Those are things that oftentimes more kind of get our mind alert. But for our hearts to be moved, we need to move oftentimes from terms to stories, to God's actions. It's one thing to say God is omnipotent. It's another thing to remember, you know, there was a time when God's people were helpless. There was the world strongest army was marching at them and they had before them a body of water larger than Lake Michigan and then in a moment God's hands invisibly just pulled the water away and made walls and he blew on the land and it was dry and suddenly God's people were able to walk right through the middle that is power it's one thing to say God is loving it's another thing to say do you know this that that before God even made the world he knew your name he knew everything about you and, and he made the world loving you. And Jesus gave his life loving you. He has known you and loved you in every action throughout all of eternity. When you hear that, that means something more. And it, it doesn't have to even just be those, those central truths of Scripture. We can even talk about what has God done in my life. Think about the things he has done, how he, he brought you to himself. That is who he is how he has cared for this church, that is who he is. Do you see, the fuel for the fire of praise comes as we turn our attention to what God has done and allow that story to reshape us. What we see in this passage is that God wants you and me to, to learn how to live delightfully. He is seeking to invite us into this Christ-shaped life of fearing God, living within his commands as we praise him and are changed by him. In just a moment, actually, what we do every week, one of the things, it is, is seeking to have the reality of what God has done become more and more affixed upon our soul as we eat and drink together and celebrate what God has done. 